0: don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. Today we hit part two of Nick Carter's incredible piece, How to Scale Bitcoin Without Changing a Thing. Yesterday we covered a lot of the positives and the possible benefits, but today we're going to dig into the objections. What is up, crew? Welcome back to the show. We are continuing with Nick Carter's piece uh, from yesterday's episode. If you haven't listened to it, go there because this won't make any sense. Uh, start with part one um, because uh, it's roughly the first like two-thirds of this article. Uh, but there's a lot I want to go into in the objections here um, because uh, even though like I'm very sympathetic to this idea, um, I'm also naturally very against it. Like The idea that we need third parties like us, uh, and I think a couple of the things that we read very recently apply really well to this conversation, both to the positive and to the negative. Uh, the Hapa pieces that we have done: Why state demands control of money, and then uh, how does fiat money exist? Um, I think both of those tend toward uh, defending an argument as to why Bitcoin banks, even though they have a lot of drawbacks, could be a uh, a huge positive overall because it's it's tackling a higher order problem than online like retail payments. But then we have the case for electronic cash by Jerry Brito, which we covered, which talks about the unbelievable consequences and negatives that come with having all payments intermediated by some other institution. So I think there's a lot to cover on both of those concepts. And uh, now that we're getting into the objections of this, I want to talk about uh, how both of those different concepts apply. and what the happy medium might be, like what does this future look like if we do end up in a situation where we have to go through Bitcoin banks to make payments. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into part two, um, or the section of this piece, How to Scale Bitcoin Without Changing a Thing by Nick Carter, and that is N-I-C underscore underscore C-A-R-T-E-R, You can find him on Medium or Twitter, and you should definitely be following him because he's always got some fantastically interesting things to say. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump in to the section titled, Objections. Bitcoin banks are inherently incompatible with Bitcoin. There is a somewhat nihilistic view present in Bitcoin land which starkly denies the importance of exchanges and custodians as if they didn't exist. This is often born, in my opinion, of a nostalgia for the 2010-12 era when the network was genuinely quite flat and non-hierarchical. Of course, you can't inhibit free enterprise and commerce, and smart entrepreneurs decided to create useful services of exchange, custody, and banking for Bitcoiners. Far from being a dark irony, as most pundits maintain, I think this is a perfectly natural evolution. Banks are now a meaningful portion of our network, and we have to live with that. Yes, running a node to verify incoming payments matters, but factually, some nodes matter more than others. In particular, exchange nodes, the nodes powering block explorers, blockchain API companies, merchant services, and one day, big lightning hubs. There's nothing wrong with this and it doesn't compromise Bitcoin. It is fashionable to declare not your keys, not your Bitcoin. And while absolutely true, this also misses the point. What do we do about the people that have decided to surrender their keys in exchange for IOUs at a bank? Do we smugly derive them for being unwilling to self-custody, still not intuitive for most normal people, or do we empathize with them and try and ameliorate their situation by holding exchanges accountable. I strongly suggest we do the latter. Why would anyone start proving reserves now, given that it's so out of favor? There is a perverse feature of the cryptocurrency industry that could be referred to as the paradox of transparency. Put simply, the more transparent you are, the more attack surface you open up, and the more opportunity your critics have to undermine you. As a consequence, being open and transparent is disincentivized. Since this industry has been lightly regulated so far, most successful projects are highly obscure in their operation. There is no equivalent of a 10K for established projects or an S1 for new token launches. The same goes for Bitcoin depository institutions. They are regulated under a vague patchwork of regimes with no domain-specific regulation in place, in the U.S. at least. Against this backdrop, it's often advantageous to them to disclose as little as possible about their operations. Additionally, proofs of reserves are costly. In the last three years, exchanges have not sought to differentiate themselves on credibility, but rather liquidity and number of listings. I believe that there are several catalysts for exchanges to start proving reserves. The growth of SROs. Absent any new legislation or more activist regulators, self-regulatory organizations may come to play a larger role in the U.S. and other developed nations. Japan leads the way already. SROs will need to advocate to their national governments that they are imposing standards on exchanges. In asking member organizations to prove solvency is an easy and not overly onerous carrot. The extended fallout from Quadriga CX. The full details from the scandal have not yet been revealed, but it is increasingly likely that it was not a case of misplaced keys. Forensic evidence is pointing to a deliberate years long fractional reserve. This kind of deception is unprecedented in Bitcoin. In Gox, the exchange was hacked rather than deliberately stealing funds from depositors. A bifurcation into gray and black market and compliant exchanges. A split is coming where a set of sophisticated, regulator-friendly exchanges emerge, make a clean break from the underclass of unregulated exchanges. This new cohort will seek to differentiate themselves, not on the basis of the number of tokens traded but in terms of credibility and security. Introducing audits, which include proofs of reserve, will be a natural source of differentiation. Fractional reserves at banks permanently destroy the value proposition of Bitcoin. There's a common misconception that a Bitcoin bank running a fractional reserve permanently impairs Bitcoin's assurances. For sure, a fractional reserve at a bank inflates the supply of credit, loosely money, for the period that it persists. Quadriga CX did exactly this. They didn't have sufficient reserves, and they covertly increased the supply of Bitcoin. If you include Bitcoin IOUs in your assessment of Bitcoin's supply. However, covert fractional reserves are unsustainable. They typically get found out, as happened with Gox and Quadriga, etc. When this happens, the Bitcoin credit supply shrinks as the fraud is uncovered, and those IOUs lose their convertibility. Fractional reserves are leveraging, and their discovery is a deleveraging. So the covert inflation of the money supply only occurs while that covert fractional reserve is running. The largest banks, Coinbase, Bitfinex, etc., have a strong incentive not to misrepresent their solvency because they have reputations to uphold, and executives face jail time if they do. And as this industry matures and more regulated banks come to account for a larger fraction of the market, most funds under custody will settle with the most responsible banks. Fractional reserves are inherently bad or evil. This is more of a philosophical position than one that could be settled empirically. I happen to believe that non-full reserve banking on Bitcoin is inevitable, and since it is inevitable, we might as well advocate for it to be as responsible and transparent as possible. I believe that the reason fractional reserves at Bitcoin banks are bad is not due to any inherent problem with fractional reserves themselves because they misrepresent the solvency of an exchange. Full reserve exchanges can always redeem deposits. Fractional reserve exchanges occasionally default on that obligation. If I lend my friend Bitcoin for a month, I have created credit. Genesis, BlockFi, and Unchained Capital all do this, but on a bigger scale. Institutional prime brokerage, the same concept, but on a much larger scale, is just around the corner. When a bank runs a fractional reserve, they are doing the same thing. They create credit by lending out a portion of user deposits, and they make money by charging a higher rate on those loans than the interest that they pay depositors. So for fractional reserve skeptics to be consistent, they have to be against all lending activity relating to Bitcoin. I've actually seen this view expressed, but it seems extremely draconian and unrealistic to boot. There's a clear demand to borrow and lend Bitcoin. I take a similar attitude to fractional reserves as I do to the existence of custodians. They are inevitable, so we might as well make them as transparent as possible. I propose exposing Bitcoin banks to the same forces that gave rise to Bitcoin itself, the free market. Right now, we have a market for custody, which everyone naively believes is fair and is periodically beset by shocks as fraud is exposed. Why not a market for custody, where the varying reserve ratios on offer are made transparent. It's impossible to effectively audit a Bitcoin bank. One of the harshest critics of the reserve currency model of Bitcoin is Eric Vosquil. In a post on his LeBitcoin wiki, Eric pushes back at the Amosian view of Bitcoin as a sound reserve to be used by commercial or central banks, similar to the way our monetary system used to operate with gold. Eric also gave an interesting talk on the topic at Baltic Honey Badger 2018. Eric dismisses the notion that paper certificates against depository Bitcoin are credible, stating, quote, The ratio of issued Bitcoin IOUs to Bitcoin in reserve cannot ever be effectively audited, end quote. It seems that Eric's critique relies on a few beliefs, that commercial banks would be co-opted by the state, Indeed, that banks are mere extensions of the state. That proofs of reserves can never provide adequate guarantees to depositors. That reserve ratios must be upheld by trust and hence would fail to be enforced. And that the entire Bitcoin market would be consolidated within these depository institutions who would settle IOUs against each other. I don't have the space to give them a full treatment here. I would defer to Juice's excellent point-by-point rebuttal. To be frank, I just flat-out disagree with Eric on a few key areas here. I think that proofs of reserves, if done correctly and with a reputable auditor, can provide depositors assurances of solvency in spades. I also don't believe that the government would immediately come to control the entire money supply in a Bitcoin depository setting. Commercial banks are independent, and in a non-fascist state would remain so. So let's rewind a bit. To believe that a Bitcoin banking system can escape the problems that doomed the gold-based system, you have to believe that there are advantages that Bitcoin has relative to gold as a reserve asset. I would venture that it is the case, in particular. First, Bitcoin is auditable by design. What an individual does when they run a full node is that not only do they continuously audit the supply, and make sure that the rules are being followed, but they audit the entire sequence of historical transactions to make sure every single one was legitimate and within the rules. And auditing Bitcoin's M1 is cheap. It costs a few dollars a month to run a node. Gold nodes, by contrast, are expensive. XRF spectrometers are pricey and tricky to operate. A fully trusted gold supply chain is so expensive that there are only a handful in the world, with London being by far the biggest. In practice, in the private gold market, the cost of verifying a given lump of gold is so high that entire trusted supply chains have been created so that gold circulates within a walled garden and doesn't have to be re-verified at every step. If you are curious, read the LBMA's Good Delivery Rules. $300 300 billion dollars worth of gold is currently held in London within this framework. Alternatively, central banks just custody large quantities of gold themselves and never move it. Begin graphic. So we're comparing Bitcoin full nodes, gold full nodes and fiat full nodes. And we start with Bitcoin, we got a Casa node. It costs less, it costs $300 less if you self-assemble. It is plug and play, no experience required to use it. It runs constantly, no operation required, and it proves validity of inbound transactions, integrity of the Bitcoin held, and audits the entire global supply of Bitcoin. Then you have the gold full node, which is this giant spectrometer. Uh, It costs over $5,000. It requires specialized experience to operate. It's slow and unwieldy to use, and it improves the integrity of small quantities of gold and does not prove anything about the global stock. And then the fiat full node, which is just a big question mark. And the bullet points, just trust us, just trust us, just trust us, just trust us. End graphic. And then lastly, assessing the amount of Bitcoin credit outstanding is at least plausible, whereas for gold, it's impossible. If exchanges issue IOUs redeemable for Bitcoin deposits, as they do today, We have the tools to verify that they aren't lying to us. In short, Bitcoin provides auditability guarantees that are incomparably better than those provided by gold, doing away with the need for a trusted supply chain, costly overhead for storage, or costly inbound verification. The cryptographic nature of Bitcoin, which can be extended through simple proof-of-reserve attestations, is exactly what makes it so amenable to trust-minimized custodianship. Why are you settling for intermediation? Why not push for a world where Bitcoin is used directly by all? I'm aware that my approach could be perceived as settling. However, I think the opportunity to live in a world where non-intermediated Bitcoin is the sole mode of usage has long passed us by. Normal people have a voracious demand for custodians and banks, and that makes sense. We don't self custody our stock certificates either. These things are a challenge to custody ourselves, and the additional benefits of banks, earning interest, providing peace of mind, and so on, have made them extremely popular. According to CoinShares, about 2.9 million Bitcoin are currently held in the custody of entities like Coinbase, Zappo, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, Binance, and so on. CoinMetrics tells us that about 14 million Bitcoin have been active in the last five years. Total issued supply is 17.6 million, but significant portions of supply are lost or inert. So that leaves us with 20% of the effective Bitcoin supply in the hands of third parties. Begin graphic. This is a really great... Uh, the Intermediated Chain, it's a graphic um, basically showing like uh, fiat on-ramps and off-ramps, exchanges, custodians, sp- savers and spenders, and kind of the relationship between all this, and then like the Lightning Network and that kind of thing, but it's completely impossible for me to actually try to describe, uh, so definitely when you go to drop some applause on this article, uh, check out that graphic, just because it's it's really interesting to kind of look at the... The interactions of different people with uh, the different uh, elements of the Bitcoin infrastructure and how it talks to the Bitcoin blockchain. End graphic. I don't happen to believe that we will all collectively wake up one day and decide to self custody. I see this industry going two directions one where custodians continue to breach our trust and lose user deposits, or one where we hold them accountable to a high standard. For the latter to occur, we need to acknowledge that they are an important part of the Bitcoin economy, for better or for worse. If the existence of intermediation implies that Bitcoin has failed, then the dogmatists should abandon the project. And to be frank, even if you don't like the idea of Bitcoin banks, you have nothing to lose from demanding that they prove their reserves. Normal financial institutions deal with stringent regulations because the consequences for failure are so severe. In lieu of a regulatory regime covering institutions which take Bitcoin deposits, we might as well lobby exchanges to audit themselves. What if, insert bad thing, happens to Bitcoin? Is this generalizable? The framework I'm proposing applies to any auditable digital bearer asset. That's the distinction between gold and virtual currencies or commodities. They are natively auditable, whereas gold is extremely cumbersome to audit and verify. Privacy coins are more challenging, but there are ways to audit them with view keys or selective disclosure. Blending by Bitcoin banks effectively inflates the supply of Bitcoin. Canny readers will remember their Econ 101 classes, where it was demonstrated that the cascade of deposits and lending at banks with low reserve ratios leads to the effective creation of new money, far more money than existed in deposits. This would be the case if a vibrant industry of non-full reserve Bitcoin banks were to appear. In fact, if you squint a bit, this reality is the case today. Nominal values on the Bitcoin derivatives exchange BitMEX eclipse those at spot exchanges. Far more bitcoins trade there than exist in deposits at the exchange, precisely because BitMEX extends loans to users in the form of margin. That's credit creation. I don't think there is anything inherently wrong with the creation of credit, as it is the most basic component to finance. If credit is being created in a transparent way, on top of a reserve asset that is no one else's liability, That's a significant improvement over our current system, and I think it's something worth pursuing. Thanks to Hasu, Matt Walsh, and Warren Tagami for their feedback and assistance with this article. All right, so let's hit our sponsor and start the discussion. And there we have it. That will conclude How to Scale Bitcoin without changing a thing by Nick Carter. Do not forget to be follow to to be follow to follow him on medium at nick underscore underscore Carter and uh, that's N I C and that's his uh, that's the same tag that he has on Twitter. So do not forget to follow him in both of those places and uh, if you had any specific comments uh, of Uh, in response to this article, you can drop those on Medium. Uh, There's already a little bit of a discussion going on uh, underneath this one, and this is a really, really fun one. So uh, I wanted to hit a couple of points. I kind of made notes, like little comments on pretty much every, every section. I had a little something to either disagree with or expand on a little bit. So the first section was Bitcoin banks are inherently incompatible with Bitcoin. And I kind of take the same view as uh, Nick on this one, that banks and exchanges are entirely inevitable. Like banks and exchanges were a huge part of this before before anybody was thinking that there were fees of any kind on Bitcoin. Like this goes all the way back to the very beginning. Um, They have always been around. As soon as there was any kind of infrastructure around it, custodial services existed, and there is no way around it. Um, And... Even though it kind of uh, hurts my inner cypherpunk, uh, I th- he's right that some nodes are technically more important than others. If a thousand people are depending on and or trusting one node, then it is more influential than the node that I have running at my house. Um, I'm v- validating and protecting my own commerce, but that other node is validating and protecting the commerce of that, all thousands of those people. Um, so the node itself doesn't actually appear any different on the network, like the network remains a flat structure, but the uh, the social uh, association, like the, the gathering around certain nodes, is still hierarchical because that's how people organize themselves. Um, so there is greater weight leaning on some nodes versus others. Um, so the short of it is just I think that Nick is right. Um, Bitcoin is a free and open system, and there was never any way to prevent businesses or financial services from developing on top of it. Bitcoin banks are not inherently incompatible with Bitcoin. Bitcoin banks are inevitable with Bitcoin. Um, like, and the idea that like, we're just, what are we going to do, restrict what they can do in the market, that somebody cannot create a custodial service in Bitcoin? That's absurd. Um, So even if it naturally leans toward points of concentration just because that's what people do and they want that extra... They want to trust someone else with it because they don't trust themselves. That's a huge part of custodianship. Um, So uh, is back to kind of that concept that we talked about in the case for electronic cash and then with exit and freedom uh, just thereafter as long as there is the possibility of exit, like you have the capability of running your own node uh, and that continues to exist and the underlying architecture of the network remains flat and anyone can verify, then, then the settlement network remains an escape valve that pre- prevents the abuse and corruption that we see with these institutions today um, in the legacy finance. like The, the degree of uh, systemic corruption simply is not possible where the settlement, ne- settlement layer is 100% audited. Okay, and the next section was why start proving reserves now? Like, why would the banks, uh, or excuse me, the custodians and, like, Bitcoin banks and services start proving reserves now when they haven't been doing it? And I think he's, I think, again, this is one where I pretty much agree uh, with what he says, that the push towards differentiation will be on security and transparency. Transparency, eventually. Right now, the infrastructure is still early enough that just having a service that allows easy access, um, basically makes you, uh, puts you ahead of the game. Like, so to get customers and cement your position, all you pretty much have to do is provide a good service, um, because customers are. There aren't that many alternatives still. In a lot of areas, the choices are really, really slim. But one day that will not be the case. The market will be saturated, and alternatives will be so numerous that the idea of not being able to trade or access these services just won't be a concern. Same as where you, like, people don't worry about not being able to have access to the Internet. And because of that, there's competition in exactly how that is provided. Uh, so, the infrastructure and the custodians in the Bitcoin ecosystem will start to compare. Uh, the, the comparison of just having a decent service will no longer be the differentiating factor. And when we get to that point, we will start to look for, like, the, the idea of having, being able to prove your reserves will be a huge differentiator. And uh, being far more transparent and open about their security will be a big differentiator that they will get over other services when the very fact that they exist doesn't help them get customers anymore. But again, I think that's just something that's down to the road. Um, it is something that's not here yet, and that differentiator is not needed. Um, uh, like I think it would be a huge benefit, but I, I like like with Coinfloor. Um, I think that's more of a long-term mindset. That right now everybody is still in the short-term mindset. There's so much happening so fast that uh, there's not enough maturity in the market to be making those really kind of long-term positions. And a lot of people are like the the majority of the market is still all about speculation and a lot of short-term get things out as quick as possible because things are still moving so fast. All of that stuff will slow down once the market and infrastructure matures. So um, I think that is something that can be pushed for and is likely to happen uh, at some point in the future. Okay, and then fractional reserves at banks permanently destroy the value proposition of Bitcoin. I do not think that's a huge concern either. I don't think, I've talked about this in the last couple of episodes that I think there's a huge difference. I think it's diametrically opposed the idea of a systemic, um, like, let me explain it this way. So, like, fractional reserves with a sound money like Bitcoin is a completely different mechanism than fractional reserve with USD banks. So in in the U.S. dollar, the banks actually have the legal authority to issue new notes that are indistinguishable from any other U.S. dollar. So uh, as he talks about a little bit later down, um, when they issue notes like new uh, loans as currency and then that currency gets deposited, then they have greater reserves to extend their fractional reserve and issue new loans. Like it's a feedback loop. and uh, you can actually turn that unbacked loan, even if it's you know, some ridiculous uh, fraction of actual reserve resources, you can still turn that into real cash and nobody will have any idea, regardless of where they are positioned in the banking system, that that loan has no backing whatsoever. There's no separating the fake credit from the actual currency. They are one in the same in, our, in the legacy system. That's systemic fractional reserve where the actual U.S. government is forcing people to accept dollars created from nothing simply by the, like, instituting a privilege of banks. It's a, it's, they are legally equal to any other banknote um, or any other dollar bill. So this means the entire banking system and financial system as a whole can become insolvent which is what we saw in 2008, the 2008 financial crisis, and is what has happened. It's continued to be the case today. We just have yet to pay the bill. The bill, we've just pushed interest interest rates to freaking zero, for Christ's sake, and have just run up all of our credit cards again. We just took out another credit card to pay off our last four credit cards, and we've run that one up way higher than the previous ones that were causing our problem. So even if some banks decided to not participate in this, they did not want to run the fractional reserve in that system, the currency is still insolvent and their good behavior does not affect anything. The entire thing is still at risk. It socializes the risks and costs of the fractional reserve fraud to everybody rather than simply the irresponsible banks. So in the scenario laid out here, the problem with if if that started occurring in Bitcoin, where banks are issuing their own notes against Bitcoin deposits, it's not remotely the same. Every bank is forced to have its own note that floats in relation to other notes, like like Tether and Make or Die and uh, USDC. Like they all have their own um, degree of trust backed by the institution that settles that transaction in actual Bitcoin. The banks are not going to trust each other if. The, the government is not able to just issue the notes to enforce, uh, enforce the bills. So it's just like Elaine, Elaine Wu wrote, uh, which was in the part one, she has that quote, is that it puts risk front and center. So no matter what happens, the bank cannot escape that the settlement layer does not allow them to settle bitcoins that they do not have. So uh, banking will actually be a market again and the, the risk of a systemic failure will be eliminated, and only single institutions, which if they're instituting fractional reserves on their own, they will die quick, isolated deaths, and the people, and only the people who trusted those notes will actually pay the price. It will not be a systemic, economy-wide catastrophe. Uh, so the, the conditions, the, the fundamental difference between those are could not be further from each other. Um, one is systemic, one is simply not. Um, it does, in fact, require us to rely on the trust of those institutions because we're using their notes. But in that same way, if, uh, if, if Tether collapses, if Bitfinex collapses, then it, it does not change USDC. If Bitfinex is running fractional reserve and Coinbase is not, the, the Coinbase... Uh, uh, dollar token or whatever is, um, is not susceptible to the irresponsibility of the Bitfinex one. Okay, next section was fractional reserves are inherently bad. I pretty much disagree. So Nick Carter says that no. Um, it philosophically, you know, there can be differences here, but that non-full reserve banking is inevitable and that we should just require it to be as responsible uh, transparent as possible. Then, though, he equates fractional reserve to all lending activity, saying that if you couldn't have fractional reserve, essentially, and, and maybe I'm oversimplifying what he meant, but he's saying that it would essentially say that you can't do any lending with Bitcoin, which I don't think that's the case at all. Like before, before fractional reserve was essentially made like declared as U.S. law, um, like lending deposit, deposit banks and uh, deposit and loan banks and just uh, deposit banking, were, they were different institutions. Um, the, you were actually, you had to lock your money to get an interest-bearing account, uh, which is why you couldn't just remove money from savings is because you were actively known, you knew that the, the deposit was then taken to act as a loan for someone else. That's why you were making interest payments. You were getting interest payments on it. So they were making the margin between the saver's interest and the, uh, the lending interest And in order to provide that service and make sure it was lent to somebody who could actually pay it back. But you couldn't just withdraw funds immediately because they couldn't, they couldn't pay the bill. Like they, they specifically were telling you that, okay, we have lent this money out. But that's not fractional reserve. That's just, a, that's just the service of loans. That's how loans work. The idea of a fractional reserve, even if, like, I take the Hans-Hermann Hoppe view that we, we just covered on uh, a couple episodes back, was that you can, you can openly lend out funds that someone has offered up for lending, like in BlockFi, it, at least that's what it looks like right now. Um, I don't haven't looked enough into them, but that's what they look like. Is that people are simply depositing and then they are they are loaning it out and paying the difference. But to loan out funds that BlockFi does not have is to make like a fractional reserve. Is when a contract between two people are uh, regard the funds or the resources of a third person who is not party to the contract. Um, lending is a perfectly like vibrant market, whether or not fractional reserve exists, it just gets overbloated and can be and is open to huge amounts of risk if we start fractional reserve in that lending. It's the same as a car rental service. They lend out vehicles to people, but it's not they don't schedule more people to rent out cars than cars they have on the lot. Fractional reserve is inherently bad even if it's transparent. The only caveat that I concede in this is that is in an economy where institutions issue their own notes so that the fractional reserve, the, the degree of trust and risk is isolated to those bank notes is that it won't cause a systemic imbalance. So it's isolated to their quote unquote token. Um, and like I said yesterday, if the institution is open about it, then the customers knowingly enter into agreement that that understanding that the bank literally does not have the coins to cover their customers um, and that they won't get it back, well, I, I, just, I don't see a good way to prevent people from being stupid. I think that's stupid, and if they're open about it, it's hard to call it fraud exactly because they're only screwing over their other customers. They're only putting their customers at risk. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's, it's not sustainable. You know, you can take losses if you have reserves to cover your loans. If a loan fa- fails and defaults, then that percentage, that margin on the interest can cover those losses if you're not, if you don't really suck at lending, like choosing who to lend to. Um, so the percentage of, sex, success, <laughs> of successful loans will make up the difference. But if you start with fractional reserves, the risk involved compounds so fast. so. I think fractional reserve is simply the first step to collapsing a financial institution and screwing over your deposits, and not a whole lot else. So maybe he's right that you know it's inevitable. Um, but it was—I don't know. I don't know. I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm very much against the idea of fractional reserve in pretty much any sense, um, even if even if customers are simply ignorant and basically taking the risk that they're buying tokens that cannot be redeemed, but that may or may not be redeemed for Bitcoin um, with the hope of a unsustainable uh, higher interest rate. Uh, so, who knows? We'll see. All right, next one is, it's impossible to effectively audit a Bitcoin bank. Here, I am totally in agreement with Nick. Uh, Vosquil uh, has some... Excellent stuff in the Bitcoin Wiki, but I think he's—I think Voskul is um, or Vosquil is uh, um, not correct in his assessment. I think uh, Nick Carter is very right that the, the idea of auditing gold and the dollar is fundamentally opposed to how well we can audit Bitcoin. I, I don't even—I don't even consider in this consider them in the same realm of uh, problems. Uh, the entire supply of Bitcoin is not even remotely up for debate. Uh, M one for fiat is is basically a guess. Uh, and gold reserves are basically a trusted audit with any government or central bank, and they could easily fudge the numbers a little bit uh, with uh, you know a dishonest auditor, and no one would know. Like you can't like nobody's like auditing the auditor of the auditor. Like the degree of self verification. The degree that a normal person could validate it is practically non-existent. If they lied or even made a mistake and said that they had one more gold bar than they actually had, it's not like you can check it. It's, it's, not, like, it's not like you can count up the bank reserves uh, 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 released from all the other banks or the central banks in this uh, economy and then be like, well, that's, that's one more gold bar than was mined. Like, we have proof that they're being dishonest. The gold supply is a loose estimate at best, and auditing is just another process of trusting the auditor. Audits of Bitcoin could not be more diametrically different. Uh, The supply has no wiggle room. Proving reserves is a simple, rather simple cryptographic process, or it's just meaningless. Like, we have a system where it is cryptographically provable, so if you have a bank that refuses to do it, like that should just be an immediate admission of guilt. Same as Craig Wright not signing with Satoshi's keys but wanting everybody to believe he's Satoshi is an admission that he can't sign it and that it, it, he's not Satoshi. Only the ridiculously naive would believe someone who does not offer any evidence in a system that has the most perfect way to prove evidence. So I, I would say at this point that... Um, or, or or try to point out to those people that if they get screwed, you know uh, they learn their lesson, and the likelihood of it happening to others in the future gets just just a little bit smaller. Um, but audits of bitcoin and audits of gold like like whether or not the bitcoin is a better reserve currency than gold is just they, they cannot be they cannot be equated. Bitcoin is so vastly superior and um, could provide a check on central banks and governments and lending institutions that gold could never hope to achieve. Um, the elements involved are just there's just not this is not the same, not even close. Okay, uh, next section was why are you settling for intermediation? Why not push for a world where Bitcoin is used directly? Um, uh, I just, I think he has a really, really great point. Um, just straight out the gate, and I highlighted it in the article, was, I'll just, I'll just quote it. I don't happen to believe that we will all collectively wake up one day and decide to self-custody. I see this industry going two directions. One where custodians continue to breach our trust and lose user deposits, or one where we hold them accountable to a higher standard. The latter to occur, we need to acknowledge that they are an important part of the Bitcoin economy, for better or for worse. If the existence of intermediation implies that Bitcoin has failed, then the dogmatists should abandon the project. And to be frank, even if you don't like the idea of Bitcoin banks, you have nothing to dilute delo- you have, excuse me, you have nothing to lose from demanding that they prove their reserves. End quote. And that is pretty much how I feel about it. The custodian, custodial services are inevitable. But I think the only, every time there's a pressure in the market, like he talks about it early in part one, we, we noticed that all of the quote-unquote proof of reserves happened just after M.T. Cox collapsed, and then they kind of went by the wayside except for CoinFloor, who does it every month. And as we have other uh, problems in the industry like that, or Quadriga, which happened more uh, more recently, uh, I think those pressures will push towards making those types of things the norm and those types of things the standard. And then we also have the uh, the growth of like multi sig schemes like Casa, um, where you can have they can essentially offer a huge benefit to uh, cus- pseudo-custodial services where they're holding a key and offering extra security and the recovery of lost coins and stuff to help offload that risk onto an institution that can benefit from you know selling their security, but at the same time never put the customer out of control of their coins. Um, and I think that's a huge... Uh, I think that's a huge thing that will, because of the culture of Bitcoin right now that I hope stays consistent, and I think the just the nature of the money itself as a digital bearer asset um will continue to push things in that way. It will change it, it will change the habits and the thinking of people who are in the Bitcoin space, and hopefully we don't have to have too many hacks and exchange collapses and fractional reserve uh, uh, you know problems. Uh, for it to push us in that direction, but I think the fact that that is so easy, and the fact that, that exists in, in a competitive market, will push things toward that direction. It will make that far more common, and um, uh, hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, an industry standard. Um, so I see, I see the possibility of that type of thing in Bitcoin far, far greater. Well, I mean, it's just, it's not even possible in the alternative. In the legacy system, that's just not even a thing. So, overall, I think, I think this article had a lays out a really, really good argument. And a huge thank you to Nick Carter, particularly for the hate that this conversation typically will draw up and the, the how uh, sort of religious people kind of get about these types of things. Um and uh, my, myself included sometimes, because um, I, I I see a lot of what Bitcoin is as a f- philosophical argument rather than a purely technical one. So I naturally tend to lean away from this position. like i don't I don't like to admit that it's pretty much a reality that we have to deal with. Um, and uh, but that's why that's why I think. You know, I, I I fed the chickens this morning on the Lightning Network, uh, they, the uh, poyo, poyo feed, um, which is P-O-L-L-O, um, but I think uh, uh, Tim from our Bitcoin meetup let me know that, I think I was pronouncing it wrong, uh, but, or Pollo, oh man, I don't know. It's, it's some other language for chicken, apparently. Um, but this is exactly why I think building layers into the protocol are the biggest solution. Because even if we can't, even if it doesn't work, I think Bitcoin fundamentally creates a new system, one that is vastly superior than what we currently have to deal with. But I don't think, I have not even close to given up hope because I see the Lightning Network, I have used the Lightning Network and this is basically iteration one of a layer two network using the scripts and the fluid contracts of uh, of Bitcoin script in order to make network connections, of, of uh, connections that are used to facilitate value and essentially have Lightning Network is a deferred settlement with built-in proof of reserves. It's exactly what makes that payment layer possible exactly what continues to enforce bitcoin as use for digital cash you just have to stake space onto the network you have to you have to make a connection to the network and uh but i've used but i use it all the time right now there are still a ton of limitations i'm having to lock up more bitcoin in channels than i can legitimately transact with right now so it's not there, there is still a trade-off there that, you know, to be able to spend forty or fifty dollars safely, I'm having to lock up fifty. Excuse me, I'm having to lock up like five hundred or six hundred dollars, like legitimately, and that's mostly because uh, multipath payments are not there yet, um, and there's still a lot of risk. But it's working. It's working great. To think that I can actually lock up five hundred dollars and make. 10 20 payments back and forth uh, like uh, uh, withdrawal from my me account or deposit to and.me and all of these different services and uh, lightning games and businesses and stuff and then I've done this a lot and it just keeps working. After an initial setup, this wallet has just continued to behave exactly like I would hope it did that my payments just go through um, and so I don't think even though this is the caveat, this is basically let's say it all fails and we're stuck with this, even though I think this is a better future than what we can expect from the legacy system, I don't think that's even close to what we're going to see. I think the things that we can build with this make this just not a concern at all. I think we will have our electronic cash. I think we will, uh, I think we will have privacy. Um, I think it will scale in hundreds of different ways instead of just one. Um, I think the Lightning Network is a part of those solutions, but I think there are going to be many, many, many more, and I don't think it will be custodial. I think custodianship will exist. It will be inevitable, just as he has laid out in this, um, uh, in this article very well, um, but I think the option of exit... And alternatives that are incredibly trust minimized will be widespread and will be very common, um, because there are too many people building it, and it's not—it's just not that far of a stretch. Um, and I think we're already—we're already seeing the beginnings of it. Um, and I don't see it; I see no way that it gets worse. Um, I only see that it continues to improve. In fact, there is so much already in the pipeline, so many improvements and benefits to come that I think at this point the only way that we would not get there is if we just stopped doing everything. <laughs> um, and I don't see that happening. Um, I do not see the cypherpunks getting this far and then being like, okay, I guess, we, I guess we're done. I guess we just have to admit that this is all just going to be a giant custodial uh, market. And we just—this is the limit of our coding abilities. We can't do anything else. Um, I think this is only fuel to fire, and I think the idea of decentralized networks, of trustlessly aggregating, of uh, uh, peer-to-peer uh, pools of uh, signature like signatories and uh, trust-minimized broadcasting to chain aggregating with hundreds of people, um, and. Uh, additional layers that are completely private um, where payments are not intermediated uh, things like the lightning network and sidechains where we have privacy and you're not even you're not even required to trust the people essentially uh, uh, providing infrastructure for the sidechain i think all of these things are soon to come um i don't think i don't think not only do i not think they're impossible i think they're incredibly likely so we will cut it off there Uh, Thank you guys for listening. Do not forget to drop some uh, applause on that article and share that out and follow Nick Carter. That's N-I-C double underscore C-A-R-T-E-R. I will link to all of his stuff on uh, Twitter and Medium in the show notes. And you can check all of that out at uh, the Anchor page for the Crypto Economy podcast or on CryptoEconomy.life. These will both be posted as a single post for part one and part two. Uh, I think that has worked a lot better than my previous setup of posting all of them as individual posts. So, if you want to go back and listen to this in full, uh, don't forget to check out CryptoEconomy.life where you can find all of this stuff and so, so, so much more. Uh, With that, I guess we will close it here. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Crypto Economy Podcast. And until tomorrow, take it easy, guys.